Welcome to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast with your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of the Mill Creek View newspaper. And we are back. Welcome back to the Mill Creek View, Tennessee podcast. We are focusing on the volunteer state and our nation today with always an interesting person making a positive change in our community. This time, special guest, J.T. Olson. But first, for more information about the Mill Creek View podcast, visit us anywhere you get your podcasts and socials at Mill Creek View, Tennessee. While you're there, please subscribe. Welcome to our People in the News episode, where I interview people who are making an impact and are lovers of truth. Today, we are talking with J.T. Olson. In 2008, J.T. Olson left his job to start Both Hands Foundation full-time. Mark Twain said, the two most important days in a person's life are the day they were born and the day they find out why. That day, he found out why. If you're interested in partnering to make an impact in any way, you can contact him but let's do a more for all orphans, widows, and adoptive families. JT and his wife, Sarah, have been married for over 30 years and have five children, four biological and one chosen. Jeff, Daly, Nick, Max, and Grace. They now reside in Brentwood, Tennessee, just south of Nashville. Hello, JT. How are you today? Hello, Steve. I'm doing great. Glad to be here. I'm glad you're here. Uh, before, we just had a huge thunderstorm, but it went away. It's beautiful now. So it must be divine intervention that we get a good show out of this with no static electricity. Um, before you started the charity, what were you doing that you left in 2008? I was a recruiter, uh, an executive recruiter. And uh, the area I was working in at the time was uh, construction companies, local construction companies. So, uh, you know, people who people who build things. Yeah, well, Tennessee has been booming for quite a while, so I'm sure you're very busy and probably doing very well. And so you made a huge, huge decision to stop doing that, changing lives and improving their uh, working conditions and recruiting them to work to do this. How do you define for folks your charity? Well, uh, we help families raise money for adoptions, and we do it by working on a widow's house. It's a bit of a service project uh, concept, and uh, that's that's how I describe it. Usually, it leaves people a little curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was going to say. So you find a widow in need of uh, home assistance because she's maybe on her own, probably older. Demographic might be as such, and so you help with the house. And then, where does the adoption come in? And and I should also mention it is called Both Hands Foundation. Uh, one for the orphan, one for the widow. Those are the two hands. And your mission is to fulfill James 127 by serving orphans, widows, and Christian adoptive families, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless in this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Yes. As a matter of fact, when you ask me that question, uh, uh, how it all works, the easiest way, and I think the best way, is to really tell you how it happened, because that'll become very clear. I was on the board of uh, Bethany Christian Services here in town at about the turn of the century, around 2000. And uh, one year they put me in charge of the fundraiser. And I, I like golf. So I said, let's let's do a golf tournament. You know, and it was the kind of golf tournament where you ask people to sponsor you while you golf. OK, and that's the Pretty normal yeah. thing to un understand that. Okay, so I send my letters out like I'm supposed to. I had a buddy who I was in a Bible study with. He sends my letter back to me, does not include a check. He just took a magic marker and he scribbled across my letter. He said, JT, if you told me you were working on a widow's house, 
I might sponsor you. But you're just golfing. Nice cause, but not my money. <laughs> and it it hurt a my feelings. a lot of honesty there yeah well it hurt my feelings a little bit but man at the same time i thought wow what a great idea and i i called him a couple days later and we talked about it and laughed and he still didn't give me any money but uh the idea just never left me whenever i saw a 5k or a golf tournament after that i kept thinking if all those people were working on a widow's house instead of golfing or running would it be better I just, honestly, I didn't have the orphan part figured out until a couple years later, I'm in church and I run into a good friend of mine that hadn't seen him in a couple months. I said, Hey Don, what's up? And he looked at me and said, we're adopting four kids from Moldova. Now <laughs> Don already has three kids at home. Wow. And I said, what happened? <laughs> he said, I was on a mission with sweet sleep, delivering beds to orphanages, fell in love with this little boy, George got home, started the adoption process. And in the process, we found out George has three siblings. And Don looked at me and he said, we're not going to break up the siblings. And that took me back to when I was 12 years old, living on a farm in Northeastern Iowa. There was five of us kids. And uh, one weekend, my mom and dad left to celebrate their 16th wedding anniversary. And us kids were kind of farmed out to different places. And I remember Saturday night being brought home by one of the neighbors because mom and dad were coming home. And he dropped me and one of my brothers off and I was dirty. I'd played in the barn all day. So I was dirty. I had to go to the basement to change. My brother went in the front door, but I remember sitting in our basement, bending over, unlacing my boots. And my brother came down the stairs. I looked up at him and I said, I'm mom and dad home. And he looked at me and he said, mom and dad are dead. And I said, what? What? And he said, mom and dad are dead. They were killed in a car accident an hour ago. And he turned around and walked upstairs. I mean, he had just heard himself as he walked through the, the house. And he was in shock. But I remember that moment. I remember hitting that cold cement floor and crying all by myself as any 12-year-old would cry. Because I know what it's like to be an orphan. I know what it's like to hear those words. I know what it's like to wonder... What's going to happen to us? Who's going to take care of us? I, I know what it's like to, it, it's hard to describe, but it's like everything that keeps you tethered in life and keeps you sane is snipped. And it's it's the weirdest feeling, but I, I know what that's like. I, I know what it's like to wake up the next morning and and just realize after, you know, the first 15 seconds, you think it's a dream. And then you realize it's not a dream and I'm never going to see mom and dad again. And how I wish my last interaction with my father would have been different, you know? Oh, um, but, but I also know what it's like to be rescued because three months before the accident, my mom and dad, and my aunt and uncle, my mom's sister, and her husband, they changed their wills that if anything would happen to one of them, the other would, would take the kids. My aunt and uncle were 33 years old. They had three kids of their own. They took all five of us. I mean, I know what it's like to have someone come up and say, we got you. We got you. At great personal cost and sacrifice, we got you. Wow. So back to the hallway in church, when Don is telling me we don't want to break up the siblings, I'm the just right guy to say that to. Because yeah. I'm not going to sit there and say, are you sure? You know, I'm sitting there cheering them on. Honestly, the thought that went through my mind was, here's a man who's trusting God in a way that I envy. I want to have that kind of faith. 
And I, by then we had adopted Gracie. So I knew it was going to be expensive. <laughs> I said, Don, how much is this going to cost? And he just said, they're telling us 70 or 80,000. And I said, do you have any idea how you're going to raise this money? He said, no. And I said, I think I got an idea. And so Don and I put our heads together. We invited about 13, 14 friends uh, to join us. We found a widow in Nashville, Franklin actually, and uh, that needed help. We got all the supplies that we needed donated. So we, because everyone we talked to said, yeah, dude, what do you need? What a great idea. <laughs> you know, I mean, and, and we didn't do anything really heavy either, but I mean, we kept it simple. And then we all sent letters out to people before the project saying, just what my buddy told me, would you sponsor me while we work on this widow's house? All the money I raise is going to go towards the cost of this adoption. And, and we spent the day working on the house. Steve, I think about 30, 35 people showed up that day, though. I mean, it was word got out and people were so excited. People walking around serving. And, you know, what I've learned is that when people give their life away and they serve, there's a, a part in their heart that comes alive and joy comes out, you know, and it's 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 awesome. But when it was all over and, and oh, and the widow was blown away, she yeah. was she was just beside herself. And um, it was so cool to watch. And when it was over. By the time we everything was over, we raised a little over seventy thousand. Wow! <laughs> and, <laughs> and I was thinking maybe ten or fifteen. I mean, I didn't know what to expect. It's it's almost like we're we're on holy ground here, you know. It's widows and orphans, yeah. and uh, that was the first project. And and uh, the, about a year later, we did another project, and that's after that project. That's when I decided that I needed to do this. But I hope that explains to you how it works. I mean, yes, it, how it worked in hindsight, absolutely um, meant to be. Uh, was that a, do you think that's a Nashville exclusive story or, or is that replicable all across the country or have you even tried to do it outside of the country or the state? Well, we've, we've done it for 15 years now and we've done, well, after last Saturday, we had five projects. So we, we've done 1,241 projects in wow. 45 states. That's amazing. And we've raised... 17 million and a hundred percent of that money goes to the cause. We don't take anything out for operations. We raise our operational funds on the side. Uh, um, 1,491 kids are no longer orphans. Yeah. And, uh, you did 1, that. 1,407 widows have been served. So the, so orf the orphans don't end up with the widows, the widows get served and the orphans end up in a family. That's not, they're separate, but equal in terms of your uh, operations. Two two separate entities that, in most cases, didn't know each other beforehand, and and they they make something beautiful happen. Yeah, that's fantastic. So the purpose, as we said, was to help Christian adoptive families fund their adoptions by coordinating a service project, fixing up a widow's home. The vision to see the day when finances are not an obstacle for Christian families who are led to adopt, while simultaneously serving every widow in need of home repairs. How many home repairs have you done? Well, 1,407 widows have been served. Wow. Amazing. Uh, <laughs> it's, so, each project's a little bit different. You know, they don't, all, it's not all the same thing because sure, sure. Sure. painting, fixing up the porch, whatever the case may be. Yeah. So you and your four siblings had to all go through the system. Let's call it together. I mean, I know you have family, but you've seen now, uh, 
children that have to go through the system. Um, it's it's a it's a difficult process, isn't it? You know, for, for let's say people are listening to our show just to understand the adoption processes. Um, don't most new parents like they want one baby, and and you had to be you were five at the time. You, you know what I'm saying? Like when they go find the orphans, they want a newborn as if it was their own, as opposed to a a toddler or a, or a, or a or even a tween. Yes, and, and let me just address one thing that you that, to start off your your question. Yeah, us five kids. We went to live with my aunt and uncle. We lived in Iowa. My aunt and uncle lived in a very nice suburb of Milwaukee, by the way. So it was a big cultural change, not only that, but uh, it was a that was a change. But the reason we were able to do that without having a lot of problems with the system was because they changed their wills, and and people could make a big difference if they just changed their wills and appointed somebody in case of you know in the event of their demise. Now I, I do remember going in front of a judge. I can't remember if it was Iowa or Wisconsin, but he just asked all of us, you guys okay with this? Is this, do you understand this? And we said, yeah, you know, so that's one thing people can do. Okay. Mm -hmm. Ahead of time. But yes, uh, you know, there's a lot of people, they want an infant because they want, you know, a lot of times they adopt because they can't, you know, conceive. And and so they want to have an infant. They want to have that experience. But in my line of work, I get exposed to such a wide array of people there are people I work with who are called to adopt out of the foster care system. And they're called to adopt kids who are seven, eight, 12, 13 years old. Not everyone is called to, to take that stand. You know I mean? In other words, to, to say, this is what I'm doing. Some mm-hmm. people it's, it's an adult. And I, I mean, not everyone's called to adopt from China. You know, some people are called to adopt from Bulgaria. Some people call it to adopt from the United States. It's just what everyone's heart is. It's, you know, in my mind, it's a world. It's not a, country you know uh it's god's world you know uh have you seen things in that world that if you could make it all go away or make it simpler to put a child in a safe loving family you you would like do you know of where the red tape is that you would say you know this is a problem and if we could just solve that legislatively this could be easier well, the simple answer is the dark heart of man. If the dark heart of man wasn't there, yes, then no no problems would be here. So, uh, but that's the, that's the that's the start of it. Uh, and I don't mean to be glib or anything, but I'm just yeah. you know, True. That, that's when I when I hear that I think because it usually has to do the reason they're in this situation because their mom or dad are acting irresponsibly. You know, in 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 a lot of foster care systems, I shouldn't say all. That's wrong. But I mean, a lot of times it's because somebody is acting irresponsibly. And uh, they, the society has deemed that, you know, we're not going to leave these kids in this situation because the kids are in danger, you know, and it could be several things. So that I wish would go away. I wish, um, honestly, I wish, I wish dads would step up and stay married to their wives. And I, and I wish they would uh, be good husbands and good providers and good fathers. Uh, That would make the situation go away. You know, if, 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 you know, if we just had a little more, if there was more of a revival in this country, uh, you know, some of this stuff would be taken care of. But given what we have, uh, it's frustrating sometimes. Uh, infant adoptions, it's it's frustrating uh, when the mom works with an adoptive family for three months, and then when she has the baby, she changes her mind and mm-hmm. says, I want to parent this child. Now, I'm not against a mother keeping a baby. Don't hear that. I'm just saying what's frustrating is you just wish you could have foretold the future and knew that because I have been with families who have experienced that and that's heartbreaking. And, but those same people, 
They have the love of Christ in them, so they're happy the mother is doing that. But at the same time, there's joy and there's sorrow. And it's 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 a it's a balancing it's, it's there's tension there. Is that but, something that's rare or common? Uh it's 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 not rare, it's not common, but okay. I wouldn't call it rare. You know, it 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 can happen. Okay. And uh and, and that happens. And sometimes um, you know, sometimes you have some I've I've heard of stories where the social worker was there and um she said, you don't have to give this baby up. She's talking to the mom herself and the parents aren't even there. You don't need to give this baby up. You can parent this. And I had one guy, he ran a, a foster care system. And he said a year later, that child was back in the foster care system because that mom was not equipped to raise that child. Um, yeah. And it's, and it's, and it's nothing that I'm not being judgmental. I'm just saying these are sad situations. Yeah. I do want to get into the foster care system and, and the business of it in a minute, but tell us about your book by the orphan, the widow and me. Well, whenever I would tell the story of both hands, people would, you know, I'd speak at a church or some group or something, they'd always come up to me and say, someone would come up and say, you really ought to write a book. <laughs> and and really, when I think about the way God has orchestrated, and, and I'm just giving, I gave you a couple, just one story that really kind of ties in how, how God has been preparing me for this, for this role. Um, and your Mark Twain quote is one of my favorites. I've got it, uh, I've got it framed in uh, one of the rooms of our office that we were able to use. Um, and uh, I, I love that. I it just, you know, the accident happened when I was 12 years old. I started both hands when I was 52. There's biblical significance to 40 years. And it's not like I was suffering or anything. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying there was that 40 years where there was preparation. And the jobs I had, the the people I met, the books I read, the, the way God transformed my life in my early twenties and, you know, accepting Christ and, and just that transformation, the sanctification we all go through as we get older, you know, and, and hopefully that's happening. But um, it's like, I was 52 and he said, JT, this is what it's all been about. This, you know, do you think for a minute, I'm going to waste these tears? Do you think I'm going to let all this go to, no, this has been the plan all along. Now just tee it up and swing. Cause this is going to be fun. You know, <laughs> and it really has been fun. I mean, I, I just get to talk to parents who are adopting. I get to coach them. I do what I always did. I mean, for 30 years, I was a sales manager, you know, and I, I know how to help people put teams together. And that's what I do with families. And, and uh, you know, I have a heart for widows, too. I, the the My aunt, my dad's sister, who was a widow, uh, she came and took care of us on the farm in that little time we didn't go we didn't go to milwaukee right away after the accident that's three boys we finished the school year out and my aunt agnes came and you know she stayed with us and uh my dad's brother also was living with us so we had a brother and sister kind of acting as our mom and dad but um you know i just i, I just and i also think that the the forgotten people in this world are the widows and there's so many stories uh, so many stories that that when you look back on it you think god that's what god was doing I mean, in the 90s, my wife and I here in our house in Brentwood, we put up four different women who were about to have an abortion. Mm -hmm. And we said, stay with us. We'll adopt this baby. And you can go back to school, back to your city, because I work with college students, you know. You can go back and then none of this, we, we'll just, it, it, you can go back. It's not, you don't have to do this. And all four of them uh live with us for a different part of their pregnancy a couple of them all the way through and a couple of them we got pregnant while they were staying with us mm -hmm. 
and then and but in the meantime, God had changed their hearts and said, I want to I want to parent this baby. So there I was living with two pregnant women. Uh, but, <laughs> you know, but uh, but, you know, just the fact of putting those four girls up at different times, not all at once, but, you know, throughout the 90s and um, and just and just seeing the need they had. I just my, my attitude has just been if I'm going to be pro-life, if I'm going to say this is the biggest thing we're doing wrong as a nation, then I better I better back it up and do something about it. You know, you sure have, I have yeah. to work with college students and college students sometimes you know, make mistakes in those situations. And, you know, there's a couple there's a couple of young adults who are 25, 27 years old right now walking around that. are walking around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, touched touch by you, touched by an angel. Um, and and are those the stories that are chronicled in that book? Yes. Yes. And so uh, one of, one of your one of your admirers said J.T. Olson's story shows that our greatest hurt can become the source of God's greatest gifts through us to others. You agree with that? Yeah. 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 He doesn't. And somebody time. else that I know said its impact might just last a lifetime. That was Dave Ramsey. Uh, what is your connection to Dave Ramsey? He wrote on your book cover. Well, he he uh, attended the same church for many years, and I would run into him. I also, uh, one of their good friends early on in his career, before he started, way before he started Dave Ramsey, a really good friend. My old roommate uh, were good friends with them, and uh, I had met them that way. Uh, a lot of it through church. I've done the Dave Ramsey program and everything, and, and they're prominent here in Nashville. Uh so, you know, I said, Hey, you want to look, want to look at this book? <laughs> <laughs> but as he has helped you at all with, uh, with both hands. Oh yes. I mean, I got that one time he let me come in and do the devotional. He has a devotional once a week, you know, for the whole company, I got to do the devotional. Um, and I, every once in a while, I still hear someone says I was there five years ago when you did this, you know, and, uh, and, and it was interesting because one guy said, you know what? I don't, he talked about some other people that were there. I mean, some prominent people you would know. He said, I don't remember anything they said. He said, but I remember what you said. <laughs> and and I'm not saying that, I'm just saying is that uh -huh. it's this story. And, and my wife always reminds me, because I always get nervous when I'm, you know, you got to go tell the story. You don't want to mess it up, <laughs> you know? And she just says, hey, it's God's story. You're the steward. It's God's story. Mm -hmm. And, that's, and right. I, that's how I feel. I feel it's God's story of how he can take something that's hard and painful and turn it into something that's beautiful. And it's, it's powerful. And I think people need to know that But when they're going through hard times, like, is God ever going to use any of this? The things I'm learning, the people I'm meeting, the pain I'm feeling, is it ever going to come to where it's going to make a difference and an impact for somebody else's life? So, and on that note, you, is it Gracie that you adopted from China? Yeah. 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 And so what was that process like having to deal internationally <laughs> with, a Chinese well, child. Well, I mean, I was, again, when I left Southwestern, that's where it worked. I worked with college students. I left that in 97. Uh, and that's when we, the you know, in the 90s, we had those girls stay with us. But when I left Southwestern, I wasn't going to travel anymore. And I wanted to give my life away to something that was important. And again, it was Bethany Christian Service because they ministered to women in crisis pregnancies. You know, and I when the girls stayed with us, they came in and they ministered to these girls help them figure out how to do this. And they didn't charge a dime. And it was, I just, I thought that was good. So I joined the board of Bethany for about four or five years, right around the turn of the century. And, uh, you know, I, I was around adoption. I mean, that's what they do. And, and we would have monthly meetings, you know, and uh, we knew people who were adopting. I would come home from a meeting and my wife would say, well, how was the meeting? 
I'd say, well, it was good. We did that. We did this. And, you know, we got this much in the bank. And, oh, and there's two new kids, uh, two twins down at the neonatal unit at Baptist Hospital. And she'd say, oh, let's go see them. And I go, what? <laughs> Why? She said, well, maybe we can adopt them. I said, honey, we can't adopt them. We just left Southwestern. We just started a new business. All the money's going out. Nothing's coming in. I mean, we would have to go into our life savings. Do you want to go into our life savings? And that would kind of shut her up. And then I'd go to another meeting. And a month later, I'd come back and she said, how was the meeting? I said, oh, and there's a new baby down at Southern Hills. Let's go see him. And I said, no, we can't. You know, because we would have to go into our life savings. Do you want to go into our life savings? And at one point, she just stopped me. She said, listen, she said, I would be happy with these four kids the rest of my life. I'd be happy with one more. You have four kids here who would love to have a new baby brother or sister. There's five of us. We're all on board with the adoption thing. There's only one of us around the house who's not on board. And you can go talk to your friends. Because sometimes I would be on board, and sometimes I'd talk about it with enthusiasm, and some other times I wouldn't when I thought about the money, because that's what the problem with men is. We think about we got to steward our family, you know, and, and we're supposed to do that, so that's on our mind. Yeah. She just said, you can talk to your friends about it, talk to anyone you want about it, but stop talking to me about it. When you're ready to talk, when you're ready to go, then come talk to me. And I just, and then, and then every night I'm putting the kids to bed and they're saying, and dear God, please let dad let us adopt. And, and so, so, awesome. so it's Christmas Eve, 2001. Wow. It's 11 o'clock at night. I'm headed to the attic to pick up the stockings to hang by the chimney with care because that's my job. And I go up into our attic and I see a stroller. I see a high chair. I see a crib. And I I say to myself, we got everything we need to raise another child. And and the thought hit me, what's wrong with using a life savings to save a life? And it's like God dealt with my greed. He dealt with my insecurity. He dealt with my desire to build my nest egg and and not, not, he, he dealt with my lack of trust. You know, sometimes people have their father take them to the woodshed. My father took me to the attic. You know, and uh, I walked down the stairs and my wife was going up the stairs for some reason. And I said, honey, we got a high chair. We got a stroller. We got a crib. And she thought I was about to say, it's time for a yard sale. You know, (laughs) and uh, I just said, no, we've got everything we need to raise another child. What's what's wrong with using a life savings to save a life? And she said, are you serious? I said, yeah. She said, can I tell the kids? I said, (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> and the next morning in their stocking, they all got a note saying that they were going to be a big brother or big sister. Oh, that's and, beautiful. And and I, and yeah, it's beautiful. And honestly, the 26th of December was a month. If I think, if I remember correctly, well, it was the next day, 26th. She was on it like a dog on a pork chop. I mean, she was calling people. She was, she was, I mean, it was on it and, and through a long series of things. And that's a great story there too. Um, is uh, is we end up adopting from China, and yeah. uh, well, with we over a hundred and fifty three million orphans worldwide, almost half the population of America, and the cost of adoption on the rise, including food inflation to pay for a child, you made a very very strong commitment, and she she got behind the wheel and and floored it. She did. <laughs> <laughs> 
And well, you know, about a year and a half later, uh, in September of 03, we were able, in a situation because it was right after that. I don't know if you remember, there was a COVID thing, uh, a virus thing or whatever. Back in 2003, they shut the country down and uh, no one could go over there. We were one of the first groups over. And because of that, uh, the hotel rooms were cheap. Everything was cheap. Everything was, they were, you know, because they were trying to build the business back up. And we had some very generous friends give us airline miles. So we got, we were able to take all four of the kids to China with us. Wow. 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 I mean, it was amazing opportunity for them to go get their little sister. And, uh, you know, said 2003, but you probably didn't mean 2003. You meant 2001 or no, 2003. It was Christmas. Christmas oh, 2003. I'm 20 years out of it. Okay, never mind. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I'm 20 years behind. Okay, <laughs> uh, all right. So um, now let's see here. Uh, you had you said 17 million dollars for adoption, um, which That's is amazing. Great, yeah, two million dollars in one year, or how did that all come about? So you, you must have started with small donations from your church and all the rest, and then you've blown up to this real foundation, uh, doing amazing work. How was the process evolved? How well, I mean, that first project was kind of like a low cost probe. You know, in other words, it didn't cost anything. I said, is this going to work? And we were blown away when we raised, when we found out how much we raised. <laughs> and and uh, it was that second project. Uh, a friend of mine had come up to me and he said, uh, he said, uh, I heard what you did with Don. Would you help me? And so we did another project and and uh, he needed to raise about 13000 We raised about 12000 So, again, it was a second project. It was April of 08. And uh, we worked on a lady's house, Miss Diane. She'd lost her husband tragically seven months earlier in a car accident. She had a fourth grader and an eighth grader. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was a, a worship leader at a church, very popular woman and just a wonderful family. We worked on her and we were going to put on a new roof. And she, she needed a new roof. And I, I, don't have, no, I have no nothing about it putting on roofs but there was a pastor at our church he said he was like the works pastor he worked he did that he said jt i put six of them on we got a crew don't worry about it you got to get the the roof donated well again that's where god came in because if you remember i was a recruiter and i worked with construction people i happen to know most of the presidents of the local construction companies here in nashville i called one up and said hey i'm working on this project uh we're working on a widow's house raise money for an adoption, he said, great, what do you need? I said, a new roof. <laughs> he, said, he said, it's done. It'll be in the front yard Thursday. Everything you need, give me the dimensions. Everything will be there Thursday morning in the front yard. I mean, so, I mean, that was amazing. Yeah. But but I remember, and I remember that project day so well. It was a beautiful April day. Um, I remember being on that roof, and I counted the people. I counted 54 people showed wow. up. And, and we were, we had transformed the front of her yard, the back of her yard, and we put a new roof on. And then I counted the cars on the street and there was 19 cars on the street. And, and it took me back to the farm about a month after the accident. Remember, we're still on the farm because us three boys are finishing the school year off. My two little sisters who were three and five, they moved in with my aunt and uncle in Milwaukee right away. But us three boys finished the school year out because, you know, the farm needed to be worked. And my uncle was there, too, my dad's brother. But I remember getting off the bus. It's a beautiful, beautiful April day, a month after the accident. And our bus stops about a half mile from the house. It's on a hill. Got off, looked in the fields. There were all our neighbors with their tractors and their plows and their planters. 
and they were planting our crops. I mean, it was Leland Meyer, Bob Grana, Everett Ellison, Bert Juvik, Ed Cooper, Doc Weimler, Jack Melcher. I mean, these are my dad's buddies, making sure their buddies' kids are taken care of, you know. And that just, I mean, I know it's like to have my feet washed, you know, and you can't repay it. And standing on that roof, that all came back to me. I thought, look what this says to the neighborhood. 19 cars. This is how you treat somebody who's gone through this. And that night, my wife and I went out to eat. I said, honey, I think I'm supposed to do this. I think this is. And then she was a stay-at-home homeschool mom. And she had questions like, you know, have you thought about health insurance? And uh, <laughs> I said, what would you think about going to work outside the home and Gosh, she was, I mean, it's just some discussions happened, obviously, but um, she went to work outside the home at Belmont University in an entry-level position. She worked her way up eventually to being in development, and I mean, she's in development now for a, a organization that intercessors for America. They pray for America, and and uh, um, so God's done unbelievable things with her, And but in the meantime, I'm talking to my neighbors, my friends. I, I I got a board together, about six or seven of my friends, my buddies, and they were agreed to be my board. And and uh we started both hands in, in August. We got the filed the papers, you know, and then yeah. papers eventually came in and so last uh, time I looked, it's two hundred and fifty, probably a plus now, volunteers um across the city and I guess now across the country. So tell us about the, the Tennessean volunteers and the nationwide volunteers. Well, what you're looking at probably 250 volunteers. We just had about a month ago, we had our big vision project because so we don't take money out when a family does a project, we don't take anything out. A hundred percent goes to them, which helps them eliminate any skepticism they've got. And then, um, and then, so we have to raise our funds ourselves. And instead of doing a concert, or a banquet like most people would do for a fundraiser. We do our own both hands project. So over the years, this thing has grown, you know, where we just actually do the, we find a widow, we serve her. Uh, it's gotten bigger this year. We really got big. We had 250 volunteers, not all of them sent letters, uh, but a lot of them sent letters out saying sponsor me. And we served 27 widows in one day. One in day. Franklin in one day <laughs> <laughs> logistically it was challenging uh and i'm glad i've got a good team uh i'm getting too old for this stuff <laughs> yeah uh but it was amazing and we raised almost four hundred thousand, awesome. and that goes towards our operation of course we have monthly donors that love what we do and we have generous partners at christmas time and your sponsors and partners tie to vision project tie to tie it means tie squared uh, one of our founding board members was one of my best friends, lived across the street. He was the one who helped me figure it out. He, uh, our families were really linked and, and, uh, his son was killed in a car accident in 2012. And, um, uh, we named this vision, this project, the tie Two vision project Ty junior was his name. Mm -hmm. Fortunately, three years ago, we lost big tie. Uh, in a tragic accident. And uh, so now we call it the tie squared. It's after the two ties, two Got great, it. two yeah. great, great men. Uh, uh, I Obviously you can't do any of this amazing work alone, not just you or your wife. And, and then with, you know, tie and tie squared before that, tell us about the staff and board. 
oh wow we've got uh I, I have an assistant who helps me and she does a lot of development work too uh we have an executive director who we got on two years ago he worked with us right out of college that's another thing the way god organized this thing my wife was at belmont she met this young man uh great young man and he ended up being my assistant right out of college so he worked with us for four years really got to learn the ropes of both hands and then he went and worked for three years at a software company and then he missed it. He missed, he missed what we do. Oh, okay. <laughs> and, and, and we wanted him back because he's a sharp guy, hard worker. Uh, Jared's his name. And we got him back as executive director. Uh, Amanda uh, is our family project coordinator. Her job is to help the families when they need anything. Um, we have uh, Andy. Andy's our marketing guy, all the social Facebook stuff. He's on top of that. He used to work for Lifeway. So he brings a lot to the table. And then our newest uh, is Matthew. We've kind of taken all the financial stuff, not the donation stuff. That's all outsourced to another company, but um, all the, the financial stuff is in-house. So we've got Matt, Matthew, who's uh, our new financial guy. So okay. and we're all in awesome. one room. We're all in <laughs> one room. And, and the room's been donated by Ty. Ty's company was, a, was Solomon Builders. And those guys are great. They, uh, they're great. They, they let us have a room for 15 years. We've never paid rent. Oh, that's fantastic. That'll keep the overhead down for sure. And that's why you don't yeah. have to take or give away a hundred cents on the dollar, which not many charities do, uh, even the biggest that we can name. So I don't want to run out of time with you, but I did want to get into a little bit of the wonkiness okay. <laughs> of just the adoption <laughs> business, I guess. Um, it was estimated the best numbers I could find was about 150,000 children were adopted in 2019 in the United States. Uh, public adoptions made up about 57% of that, um, of the total domestic adoptions, and the remaining 43% were private adoptions. What's the difference between public and private adoptions? I would like to know where your stats are, too, because a public one may be foster care. That may be what they're talking about. Uh, okay. would be it's from the National Council for Adoption and the Child Welfare Information Gateway. So between those two, that's where that came from. Well, the, sometimes what we see as public ones is is it's when there's a birth mom and, you know, it's she looks for a family on their portfolio, tries to figure out who would I want this to raise my child, you know, and um, that's uh, obviously, you know, She's being public about it, you know, but not broadcast, but, but I mean, it's not a secret. Um, sometimes private ones, um, and you know, that's, I, I, I'm just thinking that it's gotta be, uh, the ones we work on are private and, and, and public, but most the foster care ones don't need to raise money. Well, maybe because this will clarify a little bit. The, it's, the estimate for the total number of domestic adoptions is higher than estimates reported for previous years due to the increased number of public adoptions versus, say, private. Total, the total number of domestic adoptions decreased in 2020. It was estimated that 95,000 children were adopted in the U.S. in 2020, which was about a 17% decrease from 2019. So I wondered if you thought maybe that was a COVID-related Yes. Um, and that the public adoptions that made the 58% of the total domestic adoptions in 2020 and private adoptions made up 42%, a decrease in the number of adoptions was observed in all states and the District of Columbia, except for one state, South Dakota. In South Dakota, the total number of domestic adoptions decreased by 4% from 2019 to 2020. And we know that South Dakota handled COVID much different than any other state. So do you think that was the reason? And how did Tennessee do during that time? 
I think that was the reason. If I see that much of a drop, you know, it's got to be because people couldn't go out. People couldn't do that. I mean, we had a drop and we, our products were cut in half because people couldn't associate. They couldn't go work on a widow's house. They wanted to protect the widow. You know, I mean, it, it, there's a whole lot of aspects that affected us tremendously. We're trying to bounce back, you know, yeah. in the process. So when I pulled out the Tennessee numbers, it showed that the domestic adoptions was about 3,700 in, in 19 and private adoptions, whatever we are gonna define that as, made up 70% of it. The total number of domestic adoptions declined 13% in 2020. There was 3,306 domestic adoptions in 2020. According to adoption and foster care analysis and reporting system data, the number of public adoptions was 1,119. That was a 7% decline compared to 18. The number of children adopted from foster care increased by 2% in 2020. 1,186 children were adopted from foster care. Um, without running out of time, I just want to jump down to the end here because you know we had this foster care problem in Tennessee. Um, uh, despite a state crisis in which foster children are staying in workers' offices, Governor Bill yeah. Lee's office wanted to dissolve the Independent Tennessee Commission on Children and Youth. Did you see that directly? Was that affecting your work? No, we remember we don't do a lot with the foster care system. You know, I am I am I am an advocate of trying to improve it and and doing anything we can for these kids. I mean, we know that the the foster care workers they are overworked. I mean, they have got a job that's impossible, and I mean impossible. Uh, and and they, you know, it what they need to do is, and the governor's doing that. From what I can tell, and the people I've talked to, they're in the government. I've talked to a few of them. You know, uh, they're making a huge effort to make sure that more families are trained. They need foster care kids. I mean, you what would what would solve the problem would be if every church in the state of Tennessee had one family that said, I'll go, I'll do it. And and there's a plan in place for some churches where for every family that says I'll be a foster care family, there's seven families that they find. It's like a community group that they have that volunteer to walk with them. In other words, someone's going to do laundry. Someone's going to give them date nights. Someone's going to do the lawn, mow lawn. I mean, they've got it figured out. So these people aren't doing it alone. Mm. If every church did it, that would solve it. Wow. Um, and Bill, Governor but yeah, Bill Lee. But it's a problem. Yeah. Governor Lee signed a bill, HB 0318 into law, aimed at making the foster and adoption process more efficient. The legislation was written by the governor's office with the hope that people would choose adoption for their unborn children rather than abortion. Uh, so with the COVID, we saw the decline. This bill is now in place. I don't know if it came before or after. I didn't have the date here. Has it gotten more efficient uh, here in Tennessee to, to do what you're trying to do? I, I think right now it's too early to say because I don't think the stats are on. It's a recently passed one. I think, I don't know if it was September, October, November, sometime. And then I think is, I think that's when it happened. Don't, I don't follow that stuff to the date, but um, I think it's too early to tell. I know for a fact though, the people that I, you know, rub shoulders with they're the, the, their foster care is more in their mind than it was five years ago. Churches, it's more in their mind. In other words, they're effectively getting the message out to some churches that, hey, we got to do this. So we got to we got to try and do something. Okay. So, so last question. Last question. Okay. Sorry to rush, but we got really into you. And I'm sorry. To, no, this was about you. But there were 2,000, let's call it 3,000 inter-country adoptions in fiscal year 2019, a 27% decrease from 18, 
when 4,000 intercountry adoptions were reported, the pattern was observed for most states, and only six states reported an increased number of intercountry adoptions in 19. The number of intercountry adoptions remained the same between 18 and 19 in North Dakota. The number of intercountry adoptions continued to decrease in 2020. There were 1,600 adoptions, a 45% decrease from 19. Only three states reported an increased number of intercountry adoptions in 2020, and the number remained the same in Rhode Island. What can you speak on about intercountry adoptions declining in Tennessee, one of the 44 that were down or 6% increase, or was it one of the 6% that increased, I'm asking? And again, uh, intercountry adoption was down 45% in um I, there was obviously a global uh, economic downturn with 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 COVID and stuff, but are we seeing a big change now that things are, let's just say, on the mend? Well, you're seeing it in some countries. I mean, some countries, and and I know some organizations who have tried to make their focus to do more indigenous adoptions, you know, because people are talking about taking a child out of their culture, and and if if a if a group can come in and say, well, let's create. Let's 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 get people in this country to adopt these children. In some countries you go into, it's not culturally acceptable to do that. They they just don't even think about it. You know, I mean, part of it's the Christian heart. That's what makes us adopt because we're adopted. You know, yeah. and and uh, but um, so that's that's one of the factors. Another factor is some countries have decided not to because of some of the things that you know that they've been misled. They some of the they found out some of these kids have been trafficked. You know, and 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 that's again, that's the dark heart of man. I was talking about is is people will do that kind of stuff. It's evil, you know. Um, and so some countries say no, we're we're just not going to do that. Um, and some states say no, we're not going to adopt from that country because this has happened over there. I mean, so there you you threw a lot of stats. So, but there's so there's several factors that I think play into it. Uh, there's a heart of again, want to make more indigenous those kids you know with in, in their within their culture and um and also trying to prevent bad things from happening to kids yeah and then my real last question you reminded me of it um just recently a newborn baby was anonymously surrendered to knoxville's first baby box uh wow. the surrendered newborn will remain in the state foster care program for 45 days until the state is able to determine parental rights oh sorry terminate parental rights once that process is complete, he will then be placed with an adoptive family. Hopefully that's the one and only time that ever happens, but is this a thing now? Baby boxes? Well, I know there was a, a guy in China that there was a movie made about that where he was trying to do everything he could to save babies. Um, you know, um, if, if, that's, if that's the only, if that's an alternative that will prevent an abortion and save someone's life, you know, that's, I, I, if that if that saves a baby's life, I don't know how we can be against it. I hope people don't think that way, but obviously this child is alive, right? Yeah, that's the silver lining. I would hope that they would just call you and say, "Do you have a family that would like to adopt this?" And not stick it oh. in a box and hope that some administrator behind the DMV, you know, no, uh, I, oh, I promise you, for, will... no, for a newborn baby, I promise you, there are foster cares because you got to understand the foster care. There's different levels people can do. There's one, two, and three. You know, and somebody who's qualified for one may not be able to take a three. A three may be a 13-year-old who suffered trauma, and they're not qualified, but that person can take a baby. I, I, I honestly, I'm sure that baby is in a loving family right now. I mean, oh, from what great. I know that's... about 
what I know about foster care and adoption world and these people that I, that I've worked with for 15 years now, that child is, I'm I'm sure in a loving family. Okay, good. That's an optimistic note. So JT, thank you for your time. We really appreciate all the work you're doing and making Tennessee and the country a better place. Uh, We are at the end here. Tell everyone where they can go to find out more about you, follow your social media, donate to your cause, maybe even come out and help a widow. Oh, that's right. You can go to bothhands.org, O-R-G, bothhands.org, and everything you need will be there. Uh, you know, you can leave a comment. We'll get back to you, anything like that. Excellent. Well, yeah, keep the faith, and thank you so much, and, and God bless you. Thank you very much for having me on. Let me talk. <laughs> <laughs> Harvey Durham Health Insurance Agency is the trusted independent health insurance agency that you can depend on for all your health insurance coverage needs. He's great because he doesn't look at health insurance as sales. He looks at it as helping people and doing the best he can to solve your current long-term care, disability, and Medicare supplement needs, even pets. I know I'm a client and so is my lab, Caroline. Over 30 years of insurance experience behind every policy. Give Harvey a call at 731 727 9242 or email him at Harvey Durham at HarveyDurham.com and tell him Steve and Steve at Mill Creek View sent you. I don't understand how you ever did it without me. I don't understand. segment of our show where we cover what we just heard producer steve what did you think of our guest jt olson yeah i was crying a bit on that one um man this week it's been a (laughs) heavy (laughs) you lined up okay so this one was an emotional too but it was very emotionally uplifting and the other two are very challenging and uh thank you for i don't know if that was divine intervention that you lined these up or you wanted a theme but uh, no, no, it, 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 catch them as catch can. Yeah, two adoption stories, one uh, detransitioning story. I mean, we've it's about, become but quite, it's about, quite the podcast. It's about children and it's about humans. And 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 uh, I do like the point that he said it's the darkened heart of man that we have all the problems with. And so, as much as we wag our finger at all these people, uh, there are wicked people out there <laughs> that are doing wicked things. But there's some great people like JT and all yeah. the volunteers who are doing wonderful things to come in and fill that void and make a difference yeah. and, and rescue. Speaking of, speaking of people doing harm, I have a question for you since I'm over here in the middle of the country in Tennessee. <laughs> Has the ocean risen high enough to drown out the Space Needle in Seattle? No, no, it hasn't. No, no. Has As it taken fact, out San Francisco just, and New York Steve, yet? They just that put, on the news. They just put in a brand new senior center slash community center in Edmonds, Washington in the last couple of years, just beautiful. I, I'd say it's 10 feet above the, the sound and it's the same location as the old one. They built it brand new, no changes. No changes. Well, maybe it should get wiped away, you know, a good baptism of water, but I'm shocked because listen to this from 2018, which for those doing math at home, that was five years ago. Listen to this. It is what we decide now that will define the rest of humanity's future. 
And whether we choose to do that or not, if we don't, it will be a death sentence to countless of people. And it is already a death sentence to countless of people living on the front lines of the climate crisis today. But the political will is nowhere to be seen. The people in power are spending their time looking for false solutions and finding and creating loopholes which maintains business as usual and keeps them in the position of power. Our responsibility and our ro role here as activists in conferences like this is to call them out and to tell the truth. And the truth now is that these processes are failing they are failing us here in this room, they are failing our children, they are failing all of humanity and the future generations to come. Thank God they failed and we still get to build next to the water, Steve. Greta Thunberg in 2023, act on the climate crisis now or face the death sentence. Greta Thunberg 2018, climate change will wipe out humanity in five years. Oops, Oops. not yet. Oops. And that's the good news. I think the tide, no pun intended, is turning. You know how kids often rebel against their parents? They yes, say, yes. you know, happy days and rebel without a cause. Well, it happens both ways, not just 60s kids against their square 50s parents. You know, I like Ike, not maybe 2023 against their woke 90s and 2000s rents. School officials are in a panic mode over kids revolting against Pride Day. Kids refuse to wear colors and some even chanted that their pronouns are USA. Clip number two of intolerance and homophobia are unacceptable. This type of intolerant rhetoric starts in the home. Parents angry at town hall over intolerance at Marshall Simons Middle School. Kids were asked to wear rainbow clothes in honor of Pride Spirit Day, but some organized a counter protest wearing red, white and blue or black. The principal sharing a statement to families that Pride posters were ripped down, stickers ripped up, some students chanted USA are my yes! pronouns and students showing Pride were oh. intimidated. It was an unruly disruption. Oh, so very fact, ruly disruption organized ahead of time. While some parents were upset, others say it was overblown. Some of the kids threw the stickers on the ground. But, you know, I can only speak for my daughter. She just, she didn't want to wear that to school. It's not that she wanted to hurt anybody's feelings. She says her daughter felt coerced to participate in the Pride event and was offended by some of the messages, like this quote from Tennessee Williams. Human heart cannot be straight. It is curves and winds. And my daughter just kind of said, you know, Mom, that's, that's offensive to, to me. There's hope, Steve. There's lots of hope out there. This is awesome. That's right. School officials have gone so far with this that they're going to ironically end up with a ton of kids rebelling against this lunacy. Not all is lost. Good for those kids. But a Seattle story. This is Lisa Keating, vice chair of the Tacoma Washington School Board. Here she is trying to justify hiding kids from their parents so the state can sterilize and chemically castrate them. Clip number three. Uh, thank you, Vice Chair um, Cortez and committee members um, for the opportunity to speak today. My name is Lisa Keating. Oh, hold it, hold it. What, what? I am an LGBTQ youth and family advocate and the executive director of My Purple Umbrella, whose mission is to advocate for safe environments, safe inclusive environments for LGBTQ youth and their families. For transparency, I also serve um, as a board director of, on the Tacoma, uh, Tacoma School Board. I'm testifying in my professional role as a parent and, a, and as a parent of a transgender child. 
I have come before the legislature numerous times over many years. It is a heartbreaking reality that many trans youth do not have affirming loving homes. LGBTQ youth have long been at risk for, of experiencing homelessness, which is even higher for trans youth and youth of color. SB 5599 is a response to the reality trans youth are facing. This legislation would ensure that children who, are, who may not have supportive home environments do not end up on the streets, but instead have shelter when seeking these protected health services. Accessing gender affirming care has been proven to lower rates of adverse mental health outcomes, build self-esteem, and improve the overall quality of life for trans and gender diverse youth. I can attest to all of this as a mother. Our service providers need resources to care for and uh, care and provide for the young people they serve. Allowing certified shelters to contact DCYF in lieu of parents in certain instances, such as when a youth is seeking reproductive care, abortion, or gender affirming care. Expanding host home programs so that youth will have access to long-term housing in, a, in, a, in affirming environments. I've been working with families across Washington and around. With this bill ripping kids away from parents, the kids will be trans on the taxpayer's dime. So you and I, well, you will be the ones paying to sterilize and chemically castrate the kids. Steve, $55.99, I, bad stuff. It is. And I should let you know that um, last Sunday, our church uh, pointed out that uh, please sign the, the new um, people are going around with um, whatever you do, uh, where you put a referendum together. There mm -hmm. is a huge backwash right now of people gathering. We need 250,000 backlash, 250,000 uh, signatures to get it on the ballot so that we can revoke this and pull it off. So people are, are going to town trying to get uh, a, a referendum on there so that we can re revoke this because it was put in without the vote of the people. Good luck, folks. For once, California is actually following Washington instead of Washington following California instead of the other way around. Listen to this California Republican. There is one. Listen to him. In the past, when we've had these discussions and I've seen parental rights um, atrophied, I've, 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 encouraged, I've encouraged people to keep fighting. I've changed my mind on that. If you love your children, you need to flee California. You need to flee. We are moving towards the pathway of, of the hands made tale. California is becoming the new Juliet, and it, it just breaks my heart. Born and raised in this state, I love this state. I'm not going to stay in this state because it's it's just too oppressive. And I believe in freedom, and so I'm going to move to America when I leave the legislature. That's an elected official, folks. Uh, the California Democrats, and yes, half of the moderate Republicans, if you want to call them that, have destroyed that state and made your children their property. Time to go. Leave them to it. California Dreamin, Newsom's kidnapping claim against DeSantis is long on politics and short on the law. Jonathan Turley, June 9th, 2023, kidnapping charges. That hopeful tweet from Governor Gavin Newsom, Democrat California, came across as the ultimate example of California dreaming as Newsom and a chorus of politicians and pundits called for Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, Governor Ron DeSantis, Republican Florida, to be charged criminally for transporting 36 people to Sacramento. California Attorney General Bob Bonta, Democrat, chimed in, declaring the flight from Florida might be state-sanctioned kidnapping. Newsom added in the tweet, you small pathetic man, this isn't Martha's Vineyard. Back to Jonathan Turley, the problem, however, is that this is 
just like the transport of migrants to Martha's Vineyard in September 2022, which a number of Democratic leaders and legal experts insisted was also a clear case of kidnapping and human trafficking. Newsom's previously asked the U.S. Justice Department to investigate whether the flights are violations of the Federal Racketeer Influenced and Corruption Organization, that's RICO Act, a ridiculous legal suggestion to great acclaim. Rachel Rollins, then the U.S. attorney for the District of Massachusetts, announced that she was taking a look long and hard at potential charges. Then nothing happened, except that Rollins herself was accused of wrongdoing and resigned in May after the Justice Department refused to prosecute her. Jonathan Turley, an attorney, constitutional law scholar, and legal analyst in the Shapiro Chair for Public Interest Law at the George Washington University Law School. Next story, we have an election coming up soon. Sorry to throw statistics and facts around again, but if you want to win an election, you have to win by what? 50.1%, right? Here's the first ad of the new season. Clip number five. Did racism against white people become okay? Joe Biden put white people last in line for COVID relief funds. Kamala Harris said disaster aid should go to non-white citizens first. Liberal politicians block access to medicine based on skin color. Progressive corporations, airlines, universities, all openly discriminate against white Americans. Racism is always wrong. The left's anti-white bigotry must stop. We are all entitled to equal treatment under law. America First Legal paid for this ad. When <laughs> it's an 88% white country, by the way. But, okay, that type of ad should have started in 1996 when affirmative action was a thing. But moving on. Taxpayer-funded PBS, Public Broadcasting System, the Big Bird and Elmo Channel, has an opinion. PBS NewsHour White House correspondent Laura Baron Lopez continued her recent streak of transgender activism on Monday night by interviewing Professor Michelle Forcier, who compared giving hormones to eight-year-olds to treatment for, well, listen for yourself, what passes for a professor these days. Clip number six. Interviewing Professor Michelle Forkier, who compared giving hormones to eight-year-olds to treatment for an earache. As part of a lengthy segment on Texas, Forkier argued, if I had a 10-year-old or an eight-year-old who told me their ear hurt, I wouldn't look at them and say you're only eight or ten. You don't know if your ear hurts, right? It's important that we listen to kids. It doesn't mean that a kid says, I'm trans, and two hours later they get hormones. It means that we respect kids as individuals. Forkier is a go-to source for Pulte fact, but comparing temporary ear pain to hormonal treatment should earn a pants on fire rating. Earlier in the segment, Baron Lopez introduced State Representative Tom Oliverson, who pushed the bill banning gender-affirming care for minors through the legislature, as someone who rejects the medical establishment's consensus on gender-affirming care. Now, she asked him about Aaliyah who is one of the kids that we have spoken to was in such pain, watching what was happening and what was unfolding in Texas because they live in Texas, they said, I don't get why they all hate me. They don't know me. What do you say to that kid? Just last week, the United Kingdom's National Health Service also banned hormone treatment for minors outside of clinical studies, but Baron Lopez naturally didn't bring that up. As for Oliverson, he replied, well, I mean, Obviously I want that kid to get some mental health treatment. So that. Baron Lopez interrupted him to argue. They have been going through mental health treatment for a long time. Not deterred. Oliverson continued. Well, good. Good. I mean, 
that is the appropriate treatment for mental health conditions. And so I think, childhood, it can be tough sometimes. I remember being an adolescent. That's a tough time to figure out who you were and how you sort of fit into that collective of humanity. When it comes to teenage Leah's parents, identified only as Mary and John, they've been forced to consider drastic steps to access puberty blockers. Mary, whose face was not shown, fretted that, after our last doctor's visit, we were feeling rushed by the law and were just like, okay, okay, if we do this, we have to go back in August. So, maybe she can get the puberty blockers starting before September 1st. And it was just this, like, anxiety and this, like, if we don't do this now, what are we going to do? She also claimed that by having the same policy as the UK, Texas is making them feel like refugees. It feels like we're being pushed out, pushed out of our home, pushed out of our state, pushed out of our jobs. Like, if we go somewhere, what happens next? And I don't want to feel like we're constantly on the run. I don't want to feel like we're refugees in our own country. What happens next is that Texas becomes more like Sweden. This segment was sponsored by viewers like you. <laughs> oh, I love that computer-generated um, <laughs> uh, thing. And, and, and like, a lot of likes in there, Steve. Like, 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 like a valley girl. Okay, next story. Heart failure deaths in May. Not May of 2001. Not May of 2002. May of 2003. Hit 44% higher than pre-pandemic. Why is government refusing to investigate? By Nick Rendell, June 10th, 2023. During the week ending May 26th, 2023, there were 1,397 recorded deaths from heart failure. That's 424, or if you prefer it as a percentage, 44% higher than the expected number of 973 deaths for the same week in 2020. That seems like a very significant change to me, says Nick. But why am I comparing the level of heart failure deaths in 2023 to the expected level of heart failure deaths in 2020? It's because since 2020, the expected level of deaths has been inflated by high levels of death since then. Put it another way, no excess deaths at all would be reported unless heart failure deaths in 2023 were more than 24% greater than in the same week in 2020. But it seems to me that deaths from heart failure should be a real cause of concern. It's not so long ago that the likes of Hancock and Gobe were telling us that one death is one death too many. The lack of concern with the current level of excess deaths, many of them heart-related, which the government has now said it has no plans to investigate, highlights that this view has always been sanctimonious tosh. I don't know what tosh is, but Nick Rendell used it in his disparaging remarks. The Biden Justice Department tried to stop us from getting records on government censorship efforts. Neil Patel, co-founder and publisher of The Daily Caller, not just a journalist, co-founder and publisher of The Daily Caller, wrote this. Earlier this week, the Washington Post let the American people know whose side they're on when it comes to free speech versus government-backed censorship. They're on the side of the censors. To summarize, the Post's lengthy piece frames efforts by Republican lawmakers, conservatives, and media organizations like the Daily Caller News Foundation to hold a well-heeled and growing industry dedicated to fighting so-called myths and disinformation accountable as harassment. We're not making this up. A key member of this panel was Kate Starbird of the University of Washington, <laughs> who founded the Center for an Informed Public. 
And now we know the Biden administration is a willing participant in the cover-up and apparently willing to use whatever legal channels available to keep the public in the dark about what their own government is doing to undermine core constitutional protections. If there's one issue that should unite Americans of all stripes, it's government officials colluding with an industry dedicated to censoring ideas and information inconvenient to the party in power. If we don't hold these powerful, secretive groups accountable today, we will all run the risk of being silenced down the road. Steve, do you know what masthead motto the Washington Post, owned by Amazon's Jeff Bezos, the richest man in the world, second richest, is? No, I do not know. Democracy dies in darkness. Indeed. <laughs> and finally... This lovely investigative journalism by former federal prosecutor Andrew McCarthy. The Progressive Prosecutors Project. How and why the nation's crime busters are becoming criminal enablers. The new San Francisco DA actually has in mind an immigration defense unit. He wants to assign a staff of prosecutors to protect undocumented aliens, those who are either illegal and thus deportable to begin with, or for whom a criminal conviction could result in loss of legal status and thus eventual deportation. The unit's enforcement target would be not the law violators, but the immigration and custom enforcement agents who enforce federal laws, along with any local police and corrections officials who have the temerity to assist ICE in that endeavor. That was March 2020. The same was true when Chicagoans, the residents of the nation's murder capital, elected Kim Fox, the DA of Cook County in 2016. She is yet another Soros progressive prosecutor who campaigned on the standard disparate impact delusion. The justice system must be structurally bigoted because minorities' defendants are prosecuted at numbers that vastly outpresent their proportion of the population, prepared to spot a trend. With its foundation built on scandalous fictions, the Progressive Prosecutors Project cannot help but imperil the public and squander the urban flourishing achieved by the historic reduction of crime. This becomes clearer each day. The racial scapegoating of cash bail, for example, has been taken to paradox highlight heights in New York, which has dispensed with bail entirely for broad categories of crime regarded as nonviolent. Finally, Chessa Boudin's candidacy and the agenda he championed without apology would have been inconceivable a decade ago, even in San Francisco. Now he is the elected DA. He was, he was appealed, an undeniably character charismatic leader of a movement that however patently destructive upon close scrutiny has real traction in our cities it has become a commonplace for clueless polls to wax delirious over criminal justice reform braving any glimmer of bipartisan light in our deeply divided politics that's what i got to say about that too stay tuned for my thoughts of the day If you have a beloved horse that you love like a family member and it's on its last legs, you need to call Edward at Tennessee Horse Cremation. He's got the only custom trailer around and never has to drag a horse. He's compassionate and will help make a difficult situation a little bit easier. Call and ask questions anytime. He's available seven days a week. 931-300-2333. Serving Tennessee as well as portions of Kentucky, Georgia, Alabama, and Mississippi. TN Horse Cremation. Dot com. I am Rick Warwick. I am president of the Williamson County Historical Society. You're listening to the Mill Creek Podcast. 
Welcome to my last quotes for the week. But before I share, I want to remind everyone to subscribe to Mill Creek View Podcast. Go to Rumble, Spotify, iTunes, and hit the subscribe button and follow us. 1 Samuel 27. I prayed for this child, and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. 2 Corinthians 6.18. And I will be a father to you, and you will be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Deuteronomy 10.18, he defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. James 1.27, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Matthew 25.40, the king will reply, Truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Psalm 68, 5-6, 5, a father to the fatherless, a defender of widows, is God in his holy dwelling. 6, God sets the lonely in families. He leads out the prisoners with singing, but the rebellion, the rebellious live in a sun-scorched land. That's God's words. Amen. That's it for this episode. Really hope you liked it. Thank you, JT Olson, for doing God's work and looking out for the widow and the orphan. Until next time, this is your host, Steve Abramowitz, editor-in-chief of MillCreekView.us. Peace in our time. Any views or opinions represented on the podcast are personal and belong solely to the creator and do not represent those of people, institutions, or organizations that the creator may or may not be associated with in a professional or personal capacity unless explicitly stated.